Well, in this section of narrative in Matthew, we keep seeing a similar sort of situation happen in that uh, what we've been saying is Matthew keeps turning the camera onto different groups and kind of getting a state of affairs, a situation of how, how, are, how are people responding to Jesus? Who do they see who Jesus is and how are they responding to him? So we saw his hometown, the Nazarenes. They knew who he was. They dismissed him. We saw Herod and uh, him um, thinking that Jesus is John the Baptist raised from the dead. And a couple times already, we've seen uh, the camera pan onto the crowds, the crowds, uh, those who are, they're coming for healings, they're interested in uh, getting the benefits of healing from Jesus. The question is, are they committed? Are they committed to Jesus uh, in terms of repentance and faith and discipleship following Jesus? And we've also seen the camera pan onto the disciples. So you can think of the feeding of the 5,000, the situation uh, with them, uh, with Peter walking on the water towards Jesus, with Jesus walking on the water. And we've seen in each of those a glimpse of how are people responding to Jesus? How uh, are they responding in faith? What does faith look like? And so even last week, we saw the camera pan onto the Canaanite woman, this, this person that you would not expect at all to have any any dealings with Jews, and certainly not even in recognizing Jesus as the Messiah, and yet she, Jesus says she has great faith. She has seen what many in Israel haven't seen, and even in comparison to the disciples. The disciples have faith, but it's little faith, and yet we saw the persistence of the Canaanite woman in her faith. She, Despite all these outward oppositions, oppositions even from Jesus in saying things, uh, I, I only came for the lost sheep of the house of Israel, she still came with boldness and persistency. And what we've been saying as we've gone through all of these different episodes, these different scenes, we've been talking about what does faith look like. And basically, we've been saying this, faith never looks to self, it always looks to Jesus and who he is, his identity, and his ability, and his authority, and his character, and looking on at who he is, recognizing who he is, and then acting based on who he is, acting based on his character, acting based on his authority. Faith is not self-reliance. It's not self-confidence. It is sees Jesus. It fixes its gaze on Jesus, acknowledges who he is, and then lives, lives according to who he is in all of its aspects. And we know, you and I know, that we can struggle. There are times where we, we get a clear sight of who Jesus is and we act by faith. Maybe there's a trial of faith in our life or some trial or situation that the Lord puts us through. And through that time, our gaze is fixed on Jesus. We do see him and we are relying on him. We are depending on him. And yet we know that as time goes on, even from such moments as those where our faith grows or the Lord allows us to have greater faith, as time goes on, our focus can drift. It can shift from Jesus. You can think back to Peter, right? He's on the, the water, on the seas, walking on the water, and he's doing it. He's looking at Jesus, and yet when we looked at that episode, uh, for some reason, he starts looking to the circumstances around him, and then he starts sinking, and we're very similar. And I bring that up because in some ma ma measure, that's, that sort of situation of drifting, our focus drifting from Jesus, that happens today. And so the main idea for the text this morning is this, keep seeing Jesus as the king who will bring restoration to the nations and the source of extending his compassion now. Keep 
seeing. Keep doing it. Keep seeing Jesus as the king who will bring restoration to the nations and the source of extending his compassion now. And really, there's two parts to this the section this morning, as Steve read them, and you can see it in your text, there's one scene that starts out with focusing on the crowds again, and the next scene focuses on the disciples again, and that breaks up our text for us. And so as we look at verses 29 through 31, we see this, that you need to see Jesus as the king who will bring restoration to the nations. You need to see Jesus as the king who will bring restoration to the nations. Look at verse 29. Jesus went on from there. Where's there? Well, where was he last week? He Remember last week, he went up to Tyre and Sidon, which is way north and west of the Sea of Galilee. It's nearer the coast of the Mediterranean. It's about 40 or 50 miles away. It's a ways up there. Uh, so Jesus didn't, it was, it was not a short journey. It was a long journey up to the north. And we had the episode with the Canaanite woman, and her great faith. And what we are told is that Jesus moves on from there. What does he do? He walks beside the Sea of Galilee. And the idea is he's coming, and whatever route he takes, eventually he's walking beside the Sea of Galilee again. So he's back. Again, that's a long journey. Now, it's, um, I, uh, there's two possible routes that Jesus could have taken, and it has some measure of bearing on the text. Uh, he could have just turned right back around and went back the exact way he came, which would have basically been going down the Mediterranean coast and then cutting over back to the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. But the other way would have been to go um, across kind of to the east from Tyre and Sidon and then to go direct south along the Jordan and then on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And you're like, well, why does it matter? Well, the reason it matters a little bit is because uh, on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee, you've got predominantly Jewish uh, population, but on the eastern shore, you've got a Gentile population, especially in one particular component that, uh, where you have a couple cities of what's known as the Decapolis, which is a 10 Gentile cities, basically. So the question is, the reason I bring that up is, the question is, well, when Jesus returns, is he ministering to Jews or is he ministering to Gentiles? And, or even, uh, and what we find out, if we were to glance over to Mark, would we, we would find out that he is actually in the Decapolis and he is in a predominantly Gentile territory. Now, that's what Mark is saying. Does Matthew care about that? Doesn't seem to because he doesn't articulate uh, directly where Jesus is at. But what we do know about the composition of Galilee and uh, around the Sea of Galilee is it's a mixture. You know, we've been primarily thinking about Jesus coming to the Jews and preaching to the Jews, and he has been, but there really is a mixture in these crowds. In fact, if you go back to chapter 4, it talks about the crowds uh, that are coming to see Jesus, and it says they're from all over, including the Decapolis, and so that would include Gentiles. And so you got to keep that in mind, and uh, the, the fact that there are nations broader from just Israel involved in this does have some bearing on what we're supposed to see from the text a little bit, and we'll, we'll see that as we go. So Jesus comes back alongside the Sea of Galilee. And so he comes back, and notice what happens, verse 29, and he went up on the mountain and sat down there. So this is kind of a funny picture that Matthew paints for us, right? He's going alongside the Sea of Galilee. He finds a mountain. We're not sure which one. Evidently, it's a well-known mountain because he says the mountain. 
uh, some sort of well-known mountain, and he goes up, and he just sits there. It's kind of funny, isn't it, right? It's just like he comes back, and he go, the picture that's painted for us, he comes back, and he just goes up, and he sits there. Why is he sitting there? What's he waiting for? Well, uh, that's some of the imagery that we're supposed to think about, and uh, it, the language that gets used here is actually very, very reminiscent, very similar of what happened in chapter 5. Chapter 5, verse 1, you'll remember, that's the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, and it's basically the same sort of language, that Jesus comes, he goes up on the mountain, his disciples come to him at that point in time, and then he teaches uh, from the, teaches the Sermon on the Mount. By the end of the Sermon on the Mount, we find out that there's some crowds, not disciples, but not committed, but there's some crowds that are hearing his teaching as well. So some of the indication, at least even just from the similar imagery, is probably Jesus is going up to teach to an extent, right? He's teaching again. He's teaching again. And what do we see? What's the result? Verse 30. And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet, and he healed them. So this is reminiscent of other scenes we've seen with the crowd, right? We see the crowd coming. They're usually and often bringing their sick to Jesus. But the last couple that we've seen have been kind of generic, where he hasn't specified, well, who's he healing? But this, this is interesting in that the text is saying, or Matthew is getting us to think about specific categories of people with illnesses. We've got blind people, we got lame people, we got mute people. He draws our attention to that. And we see, and you can't pass this over, that Jesus heals them. He heals these crowds, right? Again, just amazing. All sorts of different maladies just healed instantly, no problem, because of who Jesus is and because of who we've seen him to be. And notice how the crowd responds. What's the result of this? Verse 31. So he heals them, all these different types of maladies, so that the crowd wondered. Or the idea is they marveled. They marveled. They're seeing all this happen, and they marvel at this. They're astounded because, again, it's just instant healing. It's happening. There's no difficulties here. Jesus is just doing it. So the crowd wondered, or they marveled, when they saw the mute speaking, crippled, healthy, lame, walking, and the blind seeing. Just imagine being there and seeing all of that happening. And we're talking lots of different people bringing... Imagine this. Mind you, they're on top of a mountain, right? How hard is it to get lame people, blind people, crippled people up a mountain? So these people are desperate in that sense. They're laying them at the disciples' feet, or not the disciples' feet, at Jesus' feet, and yet it's instant healing. And these things, these maladies are being restored. These maladies are being part of a sin-cursed world. We understand that every sin, every sickness in the world, every malady, every deformity, it's ultimately because of sin, not because you sinned and therefore you're blind or you sinned and therefore you're lame. That's not always the case, but we do realize that those sorts of things are in the world because of sin, because of the fall, because of the curse. And Jesus is reversing all of those things. So the crowd sees it, they marvel, 
and what? They glorified the God of Israel. Now, what does it mean to glorify God? We talk about that all the time, and we use that language. What does that mean? Well, first, you start with the reality that God is glorious. God has glory. What does that mean? Uh, In the uh, Old Testament, the idea God has weight. Uh, God is weighty. He has intrinsic weight to his being, to who he is. In fact, we know that God is infinitely weighty. Uh, He is the ultimate reality. And then God, uh, because of who he is, he displays his weight, his majesty, his glory. And so sometimes you can think about glory as weight. The other times you can think about it as light, that God is manifesting his majesty, his the weightiness of who he is. He's manifesting that glory. And then the way God has designed man is that man is to be a mirror. He's to be a mirror. That you can envision uh, God's glory shining forth like a light beam, and it's supposed to, man is supposed to see it like a mirror, and then man is supposed to reflect back to God his worth. Meaning what? Meaning uh, the the individual, the person, appreciates, enjoys God's glory, and then speaks and exults in it and says, oh God, you are great and awesome. You are mighty. You are worthy. You are infinitely majestic. That is what God has designed all human beings to do. That is what we are, our fundamental purpose as the human race, is to reflect back to God his worth, his majesty. And that's what's going on here in measure. They see the restoration from living in a sin-cursed world, and these people, probably a mixed group of Jews and Gentiles, glorify the God of Israel. Now, it's a little bit funny that it's specified, the God of Israel. Some people, some commentators take that to mean, oh, see, he's talking to Gentiles because only Gentiles would say the God of Israel. But we actually find out in the Old Testament and even in the New Testament from Luke 168 that Uh, This is something that the Jews would have said as well. The God of Israel. They glorified the God of Israel. Now, why am I drawing attention to that? Well, because all of this imagery, all of what is being said, has roots in the Old Testament. Surprise, surprise. It always happens that way, right? Matthew is always drawing our attention back to the Old Testament. And I want to show you this. Remember, uh, Matthew is drawing our attention to the sorts of people that are being healed, the lame, the blind, the crippled, well, that reminds us of Isaiah. And we know that Isaiah is one of those big books that forms this foundation uh, for understanding who Jesus is and uh, that the New Testament authors use a bunch. So turn back first to Isaiah 35. And I want to show you what Matthew is doing and what Jesus is doing, really, with a lot of the imagery that is happening in Matthew 15. So let's stop off first in Isaiah 35, verse 5. Now, Isaiah 35, well, let me back up even a little bit with that. Isaiah is written at a time where God's people have been doing the external forms of worship, uh, and yet their heart's not in it. In fact, the verse that Jesus just quoted to the scribes and the, and the Pharisees In the earlier part of chapter 15, it came from Isaiah because that was the state of affairs in Isaiah's day, is that people were honoring God with their lips, but their heart was far from him. And so God says, 
Well, your judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. You're going to be judged, Israel, but then always, always in Isaiah, there's judgment for Israel, there's punishment for Israel, and then there's a restoration. But the restoration includes not only Israel, but then the nations more broadly. And so in the middle of 35 is part of the picture of uh, this restoration, this restoration through God's chosen king, through the Messiah, through the chosen king of Israel, through the son of David, through that ultimate king. And notice verses 5 and 6, it says this, The ears of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy, for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert." And it goes on, but that's, you can see there, we're dealing with the same crowd of people, basically, that we're dealing with in Matthew 15. And again, what's going on in 35 is a snapshot of that restoration that's going to happen through God's chosen king, through the Messiah, through the son of David, for not only Israel, but the nations. You can also see this, if you turn back a couple pages, to Isaiah 29. Isaiah 29. Now, what's interesting is that Isaiah 29 was just quoted in Matthew 15 in connection with the scribes and the Pharisees. Isaiah 29, I'll start in verse 13 and read on, um, but I want to start there because it, it, it's the quote that we saw a couple weeks on the lips of Jesus as he's addressing the scribes and the Pharisees. So Isaiah 29, 13, and the Lord said, because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. That's what Jesus quoted. He said, he said that to the Pharisees. He said, you Pharisees and scribes, you're in the same boat as Isaiah's generation. And Isaiah's generation was doing the exact same thing. They were doing the external forms of worship, but the heart was not drawing near. But notice what the result of this is in Isaiah 29. It's not just that Isaiah says that. There was a result of that reality in verse 14. Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. Ah, you who hide deep. Uh, hide deep from Yahweh your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark, and who say, who sees us? Who knows us? You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay, that the thing made should say of its maker, he did not make me? Or the thing formed save him who formed it, he has no understanding? And what you find out here, what God is setting up, and he's already said it elsewhere in Isaiah, is that judgment's coming. Because that's your attitude, Judgment's coming, and yet what happens in Isaiah 19, he says, okay, I'm going to deal with you guys, but then he jumps over to the restoration aspect, and you see that starting in verse 17. Is it not yet a very little while until Lebanon, now where's Lebanon? It's actually kind of in the same area of Tyre and Sidon to the north and west of Israel that Jesus was just at. Until Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field, and the fruitful field shall be regarded as a forest. In that day, now when you hear that language of in that day, that's the idea of the day of God's judgment, the day of him establishing his kingdom through his Messiah, the ultimate day in that sense. In that day, the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see. 
The meek shall obtain fresh joy in Yahweh, and the poor among mankind shall exult in the Holy One of Israel. And notice the similarity of the language there. We've got the same sorts of people that Jesus is healing in Matthew 15. And also notice that final phrase, people are going to exult because of the healing, because of the restoration that's going to happen in the Holy One of Israel. Well, how did it end in Matthew 15? You've got people glorifying the God of Israel. But notice here, notice in Isaiah 29, 19, that it's not just Israel, it's mankind. We've got all sorts of people. We've got the nations involved here. Now, Israel is focused in, verse 22, therefore thus says Yahweh, who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob, Jacob shall no more be ashamed, no more shall his face grow pale, for when he sees his children, the work of my hands in his midst, they will sanctify my name. They will sanctify the Holy One of Jacob, and they will stand in awe of, catch it, the God of Israel. Those who go astray in spirit will come to understanding, and those who murmur will accept instruction. So he's saying there's going to be complete reversal for Jews and Gentiles. And where do you see that? You see that in things like the blind seeing. You see that in people now not just honoring the Lord from externals, but from the heart. And that's a picture that keeps getting brought up over and over again in Isaiah. In fact, if you go back even earlier in Isaiah chapter 2, and this will tie in with some of the other of the imagery we see in Matthew. Isaiah starts, essentially he keeps saying the same thing over and over again. He gives us different glimpses and different perspectives on it. But we see this very early on in chapter 2, in verse 1 through 4. And notice what he says. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, it shall come to pass in the latter days. So there's our marker. This is going to happen in the far future. God's going to establish his kingdom. He's ultimately going to do that through his Messiah. Notice what happens. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of Yahweh shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of Yahweh, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of Yahweh from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. So you compile the picture, and there's other places we could go in Isaiah as well, but you compile the picture from Isaiah, and the picture from Isaiah is God's going to restore not only Israel, but the nations. He's going to do it through his Messiah, and people like the blind and the lame, they're going to be healed, and all the nations are going to stream up a mountain to God and to hearing his instruction which is really a lot of the imagery we see in this little section in Matthew 15, isn't it? Because even, uh, even when we remember back to Matthew 5.1, when, when Jesus went up a mountain, what did we say? Well, he's like Moses. He's going up the mountain to give his law to Israel, and yet, notice, instead of Moses just receiving the law to give Israel, um, Jesus is speaking the law because he is God incarnate. He's giving instruction 
to the nations. He takes the same posture here because it is a snapshot. Now, he's obviously not in Jerusalem. Remember, Isaiah talked about the Jerusalem being established as that mountain. He's not in Jerusalem, but what is Jesus doing? He's situating himself in such a way to give a picture that he's saying, I'm that guy. I'm the guy that's going to bring about that restoration of the nations, and notice what happens. We've probably got a mixed crowd here. We see the blind seeing, the lame walking, and what? The result is they glorified the God of Israel, which is exactly what happened with Jews and Gentiles in Isaiah 29. Jesus is the one to make all that happen. Jesus is the one to bring restoration to the nations, and that's He's giving a foretaste, he's giving a snapshot picture, a preview of coming attractions, even in this little scene of healing on top of the mountain. Now, why does Matthew do that? Well, again, what is all the stuff we've been seeing in these scenes, uh, people responding to Jesus? Well, how people respond to Jesus is based on how are, who do they see him to be? And Matthew is reminding us, hey, remember, this is who Jesus is. This is who you need to see him to be in order to be able to respond rightly, in order to be able to respond in repentance and faith. You need to see Jesus as the ultimate king who will rule over the world, over all the nations, who will restore them and bring peace to the world. That is who Jesus Christ is. And you need to see him as such to respond rightly in faith. Now, how do the people respond? They glorify the God of Israel. So what do they understand? Well, they at least understand that what Jesus is doing, he is connected with the true, the one true God. Do they all recognize him as that Messiah? No, probably not. Maybe some of them do, right? That's the question of the crowds. Where are the crowds? Are they just coming for the benefits or are they going to repent of their sins? Are they going to repent of their sins? Are they going to entrust themselves to this Messiah? They're going to see who that Messiah is. They're going to entrust themselves to him, and are they going to follow him? That's the question. And true faith will do so. So Matthew is reminding us of who Jesus is. And that's what the sight of that, the sight and the knowledge and the understanding and the grasping of who Jesus is what needs to happen first for a true, a true faith, a true repentance and faith. Now, before, we, before Matthew switches the camera on us and focuses on the disciples again, and you, bet, you guessed that the issue will be faith, which makes sense given what Matthew is setting up here, what can we learn from this little section? Well, we need to keep looking to Jesus as that king who will restore the world and the nations. That is the foundation of faith. We understand, and even the way Jesus has spoken to his disciples in Matthew, it's easy to be discouraged and to fear what the world has around us or can throw at us. And Jesus is, we saw that in chapter 10, he's pretty blunt with his disciples. Well, you're going to be persecuted, you're going to split your families, uh, it's going to be hard and we, can, we know that we can be fear and become discouraged by what we see around us, the potential of where the world could go, what it could throw at us, all these sorts of things. But if we keep seeing Jesus as the king who will restore the world and the nations, it will, that hope will anchor us to follow Jesus as his disciples no matter what. Because there's no reality bigger than that, than a king sitting on the throne of the world bringing restoration to all things 
sin, starting with sin, and then going to the external creation. There's nothing bigger than that. There's no reality bigger than that. And so that, if you see that, and you see that that's who Jesus really is, then it'll anchor you in your faith and through times of fear and doubt. It'll also help you to keep in mind that as we look in the world, we look at the dangers, we look at the fears, the anxieties of things around us. I mean, we know many of those even in our own day in the last few months and weeks. It's like, how is this all going to work out? It just feels like it's all falling apart. And what can I do? What can I do to stop it? And the reality is you can do nothing to stop it, and it's not your job. It's neither the church's job nor, um, or your job to fix the world. It's Jesus' job. It's Jesus' job. And so what are we doing here as disciples? We are proclaiming repentance and faith in Jesus. And we are waiting patiently and enduring through hard things and hard days, enduring all sorts of trials of faith until Jesus comes and fixes everything. Essentially, that's what's going on, right? You can't fix the world. I can't fix the world. The church can't fix the world. Uh, and so we wait. We wait for the king who can and who will. And that anchors all of our faith as disciples. So we need to see that Jesus is the king who will bring restoration to the nations. And then this, in the second part of what we see today in verses 32 to 39, we need to keep looking to Jesus as the source for showing compassion. Keep looking to Jesus as the source for showing compassion. Look at verse 32. So the camera switches, and we see this. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. Now, Steve already read through this. You know what's coming. It's another feeding. We've got the feeding of the 5,000, and now we've got the feeding of the 4,000. Now, why, you ever ask yourself the question, why are there two feedings? Like, why are there two of them? Now, one answer to that is they both happened historically. Well, that's true, right? Jesus did both of these feedings historically. So they both happened, and they both get recorded in Matthew and in Mark. So both both feedings happen. So that's, historically, they both happen. Great. But whenever you've got two similarity, similar situations in the same story, the author invites you to compare and contrast the two. What's similar? What's different in these two situations? Remember, we did this before. Remember the storm on the Sea of Galilee when Jesus walks on water? We compared and contrast that with the earlier storm in Matthew. Well, now we're going to do the same thing with the feeding is the 5,000 and the 4,000. They're very, very, very similar. And what ends up happening is very, very similar. So what's the point? Why does Matthew include it? What is he trying to teach us through it? Now, one thing we know automatically is that the last time, uh, the last time, remember what happened, Jesus and his disciples, they're getting away to probably the eastern shore, and they're, they're going up to the shore, and they see this crowd and then Jesus does what? He heals the crowd that he finds there. He shows compassion on the crowd there, and he heals the crowd in the feeding, before the feeding of the 5,000. Uh, and then what do the disciples do? Well, the disciples initiate and say, hey, um, what about, we better send these people away. It's getting late on the same day. So they land, and on the same day, it's getting late in that day. 
and the disciples are like, hey, we better send these people away so they can get some food from the villages. Well, notice the difference here. First, Jesus initiates this time. He comes to the disciples. He comes to the disciples and he says, I have compassion, which again, that just displays Jesus' heart, right? He has a heart of compassion. He is meeting the physical, tangible needs of the people in front of him, in addition to seeking to show compassion by meeting their spiritual needs through teaching and through proclaiming the gospel. But I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days. Oh, there's a different amount of time, isn't there, right? Because before it was just like we landed and then later that day, later that evening, well, we better send these crowds away so they can get something to eat. Well, these folks have been there a lot longer and they're sticking around with Jesus. Evidently, they're not just getting a healing done and then leaving. They're listening to what he's saying and they have stayed around for three days. So the situation is a little bit more um, intense, a little bit more intense. And they have nothing to eat. So maybe people brought stuff and they've eaten it all. And what does he say? I'm unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. So some of these people could have come from a long ways away. We don't know. But Jesus is concerned. Now, not eating for three days won't kill you. Uh, but he's just concerned in a very practical way that, okay, if I send them home, they're going to faint. They're going to give out on the way. So we need to show compassion to them. I have compassion. Now, what is he implicitly doing? Jesus is coming to the disciples and saying, I want to show compassion on this crowd for this, this, and this reason. He's implicitly saying, so I'm bringing this to you guys, disciples, to figure out what to do, right? He's bringing it to the disciples and saying, we need to fix this problem. I want to show compassion, so you guys need to help me in showing this compassion. And that makes sense given their response. Verse 33, the disciples said to him, where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? Now, notice another similarity between the feeding of the 5,000. They're in a desolate place. There's not a lot of people around. It's not necessarily a desert, but it just means that there's not a lot of people around. And what is the disciples' question? They're essentially saying, well, we don't have the source. We don't have the resources here. I don't know where we would get this stuff. Jesus, you're asking us to show compassion, to extend your compassion to the crowd. Where are we going to get enough bread to feed this people? Now, this is where comparison with the feeding of the 5,000 helps a little bit, because there's an answer to that question, isn't there? Jesus. <laughs> Jesus had told them, in the feeding of the 5,000, you give them something to eat. And they're like, oh, we don't have enough stuff. And well, Jesus says, well, what do you have? He takes it. And then Jesus breaks the bread. He gives it to the disciples who give it to the crowds. So they've seen this before. How should the disciples have answered? Jesus, we don't have the resources to do what you're asking us to do in extending your compassion, but we know you can do this because you just did it. We don't know how long it was. Maybe it was a couple weeks. Who knows? But you've done it before. You can do it again because of who you are. Because of who you are. You're the one who's walked on water. You're the one who uh, did a creative act in multiplying these loaves before 
So we don't, you're asking us to do it. The only place we can go to is you, Jesus, to, for, so that we can do it again. So what happens? They don't do that. They don't do that. Why? Because Jesus essentially set them up. He's giving them a test of faith, and they failed. They failed. They've seen what they've seen about who Jesus is, and they failed. But notice what happens. Verse 34, and Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven and a few small fish. Now, before it was five loaves and two fish. Well, here we've got more loaves. And what we find out later is it's a smaller crowd. So more loaves, a smaller crowd. They should, they should like, this is no problem for you, Jesus. We got even more loaves this time and a smaller crowd. This is easy for you, but they don't. Uh, Jesus asks them for what they have. And then essentially the same thing happens as in the feeding of the 5,000. Look at verse 35. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground. And that's the language of you're coming to a banquet. One of the imageries um, in the Old Testament, Isaiah 25, is people are going to come up at the end of time to this mountain and enjoy the Lord and have a great banquet. So now he has them sitting down on a mountain and they're going to have the language that gets kind of used is you're reclining like at a banquet. And directing the crowd to sit on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, now last time he talked about blessing it, this time he talks about thanking it, there's a slight difference there, but not much. He broke them, notice what happens, and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. The imagery is they keep coming back, so uh, he breaks them off, he gives them to the disciples, they go feed the crowds. Again, the disciples are the ones feeding the crowds, their source for doing so is Jesus in both cases, as he is doing a creative act. Uh, he violates the conservation of mass to be able to feed this crowd. Verse 37, the result, they all ate, were satisfied, and they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Now, there's actually a different word for basket used here. Uh, two different sizes of baskets, probably. We don't know uh, exactly how big they are. So it's, we're not sure, is it more or less bread that they took up this time? doesn't really matter a lot. The point is that uh, there's more what you finish with than when you started, which, which is impossible unless you have the creative power of God being able to do this. Those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. Again, just very similar to what happened before. And even how it ends, look at verse 39, and after sending away the crowds, which is what happened the last time, although Jesus was alone in sending away the crowds, this time he's not alone, sends away the crowds, got into a boat, and went to the region of Magadan. Now before, he sends away the disciples, Jesus remains alone a little bit, and then he walks on water to the boat. But both end with a boat ride over to uh, Magadan. Now where's Magadan? We don't know for sure. It's probably on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. So, but it basically ends the same way. A boat ride over to the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. What's the point? Well, again, it's a test of the disciples' faith. If you really see who Jesus is saying he is in verses 29 through 31, the king who's going to restore all creation, the one, I mean, you can even look back, the, the one who done all these healings. He's walked on water. They've said, you are the son of God. And so this is a test. Jesus sets them up for their faith and they fail. And you think about this, especially in comparison to last week with the Canaanite woman. Remember the Canaanite woman? Um, so 
she keeps coming, doesn't she? Like, there's just, like, no encouragement whatsoever. There's all this opposition, and she just keeps on coming. And how does it end, right? Uh, it's not right to give the children's bread to the dogs. And she says, well, yes, Lord, it's uh, even the dogs get some of the crumbs from the table. And then Jesus says, great is your faith. She just persistently and boldly comes. That's what the disciples should have done. Right? Jesus, um, you're asking us to extend your compassion to these people. We don't have the resources, but we've seen you do this before. This is a no-brainer. Jesus, give us the loaves, and we'll do it. Give us the loaves, and we'll do it. We'll do what you're asking us to do. Well, what happened? We cannot be harsh on the disciples, because we do the exact same thing that they do, right? Some crisis of faith, and we see God act, and we see God act in profound ways, and yet, what about the next time? What about the next time that comes up? We do the exact same thing as the disciples, don't we? Often we do. Um, Did we learn our lesson? Did we learn our lesson to look to the God who is calling us to do what he wants us to do? Right? That's, we said this before in the feeding of the 5,000, that this aspect of compassion, Jesus' ministry is a ministry of compassion. That's tangible, physical compassion, backing up the spiritual level of compassion of you're in your sins, and unless you repent and entrust yourself to Jesus and follow him, you're going to experience God's judgment for eternity, right? But both of those go hand in hand. It's a ministry of compassion. All disciples are called to extend that ministry of compassion, proclaiming the gospel of repentance and backing up by showing even tangible aspects of compassion. But the reality is we cannot do that. We do not have the resources to do that apart from persistently looking to Jesus. And the lesson for us is we need to keep looking to Jesus for the resources to show compassion now. That's why Matthew gives us these sights of Jesus as these grand, he's on the mountain, this is the creator king who's, who's going to restore all things. If you keep in mind who Jesus is, his identity, his character, his ability, his power, and then based on who he is, you act in boldness and persistence to do what he's calling you to do, to show compassion. It needs to be a persistent habit. The life of Christ, uh, the Christian life is a life of persistent faith. It is not a one and done. I signed a card. I raised a hand. I walked an aisle. God can move through those things. Don't get me wrong. But the whole Christian life is the life of faith. Faith is persistent. It characterizes the whole Christian life. It's not getting your fire insurance and then you're done. It is seeing who Jesus is through all the days of your life, seeing him as king and walking in walking and following him to extend his compassion to others that you yourself have received. And so when we encounter, like, we can't, we can't do this. We can't, we can't show compassion to others. We can't walk through this next trial of faith. What do we need to do? We need to see who Jesus is in all of his glory and then just depend and walk by faith. There's a persistence to faith. This is why we, call, we believe in the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Faith is always seeing who Jesus is. Seeing his, how do we see, 
we see Jesus first and foremost as the one who can deal with our sin, right? Even above, like he's dealing with tangible physical objects here in the feedings, but first and foremost, we need to see Jesus as the one who can deal with our sin because our sin alienates us from God. We deserve God's wrath for our sin, but Jesus is going to die for his people for their sake on the cross at the end of Matthew. He's going to deal with their sin. You have to believe that Jesus is able to deal with the fundamental problem of all of us. And not only that, he's going to deal with our sin. He's lived the perfect, righteous human life that you and I needed to live in order to access God's presence. And he did, and that gets counted to us. So we need to look to Jesus as that sufficient redeemer for us. But then what? He doesn't just leave us there. He doesn't just save us and say, all right, you're saved. Now wait for heaven. He puts us on mission, the mission of compassion, of proclaiming the same message to those around us and backing it up with tangible acts of compassion to those around us. And neither of those, the mission that Jesus has sent us on, we can't do. So we keep looking to Jesus, the one who has the source to give us what we need to accomplish what he's calling us to do and showing compassion. And we need to do that persistently through life. I hope you've seen over the last few weeks, all these different episodes, they're great because they give us pictures of faith, right? They give us pictures. What does the faith look like? And what does failure of faith look like? And how do we keep, and the point of it all is faith, you're not looking to yourself. It's not, faith is not like trying to squeeze more faith toothpaste out of the faith toothpaste tube. Right? I just need more faith. No, it's seeing who Jesus is and his resources and depending on him totally and utterly and with persistence and with boldness. Keep seeing Jesus as the king who will bring restoration to the nations and keep seeing him as the source of extending his compassion now. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are weak and feeble people and uh, we cannot do what you're calling us to do. We can't show compassion to those around us as you want us to, apart from seeing you, utterly depending on you, and walking in boldness and persistence, not because of who we are, but because of who you are as the great and mighty and awesome King. Jesus, we thank you that you are alive, you are at the right hand of the Father, you are building your church, you are not an absentee commander, you are working through your people. You are working through the church, and we pray that you would extend your compassion through us to those around us. Help us to be bold this week. Help us to look to you. And Lord, the trials of faith that we encounter, Lord, help us to keep seeing you that we might not fail, but be victorious through those challenges that you bring our way. Lord, we praise you. We praise you for who you are. Help us to be persistent and wait for the future. The future is glorious, Lord. We long for you to come, Lord Jesus, to reign over this world, to establish justice, to to heal all ills of humanity so that we might enjoy you as the triune God for all eternity. Lord, that is our hope. That is our joy. May it drive us to a persistence, we ask. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.